This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. Welcome, Digital Wildcatters, to another show, the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. It's your host, Colin McClellan. I know I'm changing it up on you a little bit. Jake usually does all of our introductions, but unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you're looking at it, Jake is not here with me today. I'm up in Denver at the Energy Tech Showcase, and here with me, co-hosting, I got my buddy, Jeremy Funk. Jeremy, how you doing? Fantastic, Colin. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. I'm, I just landed a couple hours ago. You're the first person I got to see here. It's, it's a good day. I can't complain. You're a lucky guy. <laughs> No, I'm excited. Thank you for giving me this opportunity and look forward to learning a lot about Mr. Flanagan. Yeah. Yeah. Today with us as our guest, we have Peter Flanagan from UbiTerra. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing well, Colin. Nice to meet you. Yeah. So I got introduced to you, Peter, through a good friend, Jim Thorson. Jim's one of the co-organizers of the Energy Tech Showcase up here in he uh, highly recommended that I get to talk to you when, when I came up here. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing at UbiTerra and kind of give us the quick elevator pitch. Okay. Well, our mission is to provide software for the resource play revolution. So, you know, sort of the basis for the company is the idea that there's a double paradigm shift going on in our industry. We've got the, the shift from conventional to unconventional workflows happening. And then there's in the software realm, there's obviously the whole cloud software paradigm shift going on. And so basically then what we've built is a product called ZoneView. And ZoneView is basically a real-time drilling guidance system for drilling horizontal wells and trying to drill optimal laterals. And we can talk in this interview about what is an optimal lateral. But the idea is basically you can use our software, which is cloud and browser-based, also mobile. There's a mobile version, which just showed you guys. And we looked at a drilling well live, uh, connected to the rig. And but basically, it's a real-time drilling guidance system that lets everybody on the asset team have have a live view of the drilling of the well. And in our latest version, it ha- it addresses the geosteering workflow, so you can actually geosteer the well from the new the new version of the software. Very cool. So this episode is really special because you're a serial entrepreneur yourself, former founder of Oil Decks. So that's really that's really cool because on the show, you know, most of the startup, especially in the tech space, the founders that we have are first time entrepreneurs. So you know, they don't bring that that experience uh, of building a, a product and taking it to market to the table. So I really kind of want to hear about your story before we dive too deep into Ubiterra, and I want to hear a little bit about yourself. You know, let's go predated before oil decks, and let's mm-hmm. start there. Yeah. So like a lot of people, I guess in the industry, my career started at Big Oil. So I. I worked at a place called BP Amico and notice <laughs> I, I worked in the Amico into that because you know, <laughs> we were on the Amico side and I, but I was a geophysicist there, you know, and did all the stuff that geophysicists did back in the day, you know, and still do, you know, with all the seismic and the 3D seismic. So that was my background and I really enjoyed it, but I always had the interest in the software side of things. So after not too many years and working for the big oil company, I went off, I was, in my late twenties really, you know, and had only been with Emico for about five years and to start software company number one and which was seismic processing software. And company number two was five years later, that was a seismic interpretation software system called SizeVision, which is still sold today, as is the seismic processing software system is still sold today. Mm-hmm. And then then company number three, Oildex, which you you heard about. 
And I'll just throw in there that the seismic processing software company just had its 30th year anniversary. They still operate it. That's awesome. <laughs> 30, 30 years and it's still yeah. being sold. That's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. I, but uh, it, my old partner, a guy named Dan Harold, still operates that company, runs that company. And he's, he's every SEG convention, you'll see him there with his booth. He does a great job. And it's amazing. So this is company number four for you. This is company number four. Wow. And I don't recommend that just <laughs> necessarily that one should start four companies, but somehow here I am. Yeah, it seems kind of like torture on yourself to go through that process four times. I mean, it, it's not for the week. <laughs> it's, it's, we don't do it because on a lark, right? It's, I think it's because it's in the DNA. You only do something like that if it's in your DNA and you have to. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So I'm hearing you're a geophysicist by training. Mm-hmm. You started Seismic and, and very heavy technical companies. What prompted the idea of starting the procure-to-pay electronic invoicing company in Oildex? Seems like a little bit outside of the sweet spot of the, the geophysical side. Yeah, it's a, that's a great question, Jeremy. And I had sold company number two, SizeVision, to Geographics, which was a division of Landmark Graphics. Sure which it, was a, it became a division of Halliburton. And all those acquisitions sort of happened within, a, I don't know, less than 12 months. And so I found myself working for Halliburton, basically, the landmark graphics software division, and did that for three years as a geophys- the geophysical product manager. And then when I left, an old friend of mine from Amico days, who was a, had been a geophysicist, who transitioned to become a, an MBA CFO type, a guy named Doug Ismerian, a good friend of mine, we sat down and said, Maybe we should start a company. The dot bomb, the dot com craziness had had started up. This yeah. was 1999, and I don't know. Colin, much... Colin was still in the womb. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Uh, I was. I was ten. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, unless you lived through that era, it's, it's it's hard to imagine just how crazy it was. Yeah. And but but we had the idea for a dot com, basically as we called them then, and which was you know the inspiration was joint interest billing and and electric and invoicing workflows, sure. which just are all over the place on the production side in the industry, and so, and it was yes distinctly well the great thing about it was that unlike in geophysics where you have lots of complicated math, all the numbers in accounting are accurate to the second decimal place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not. It's a, very easy math: addition and subtraction. There, in theory, there should be less arguments over data. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it it was it was an interesting ride. It, it really it was is we look doing what we do now, which is a cloud software kind of a play. We look we look back on that as Internet version 1.0, you know, and what we're doing today is Internet version 2.0. But it was crazy, right? Like anybody can start a cloud software company today, but back then you needed. Just to get going, you needed a million dollars for the servers and database licenses. and Yeah, something that a lot of people, you know, I don't think we've talked about that point on our podcast, just the barrier to entry nowadays where you're not having to go and buy a million dollars worth of on-premise servers. You know, yeah. with, with the cloud, we can deploy technology so much easier. It, it really is amazing. I, I really view, we're really in the golden age of software now, I, I think. That's how I view it. Mm-hmm. So with Oildex, you know, was this kind of, at that time, were you looking to, you know, were you seeking out a problem to go solve or did that one kind of just fall in your lap and, you know, you're, you're a provider of solutions to problems and, and you went and solved it? How did you kind of? Well, it was my partner, Doug, who brought the idea. He said, at that time, your typical 
good size oil and gas company, the headcount was something like 30 or 40% in accounting. Mm-hmm. And yikes. And they, <laughs> you know, you, we used to joke, we'd go visit these oil companies. We'd say, hey, can we see your accounting floor? And you'd go to the accounting <laughs> floor. And all you would hear was the sound. And it was the sound of shuffling paper. Quiet people in cubes working quietly. And you hear paper shuffling. And, <laughs> and, and lots and lots of people handling lots and lots of paper. So that was the inspiration. Like, this needs to go away. And, and it was an obvious internet play. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like the oil business is still very much like that. But, you know, you think about how it's probably transformed over the last 10, 15 years. It was probably even worse, which kind of scares me, to be honest, because it's, you know, you still go into oil companies' offices and it's still so much paperwork. And I'm like, man, this can be done with a computer so easily. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, I'm sure you've talked about the crew change yeah. in some of your podcasts. <laughs> Very much, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a, a relevant, you know, relevant to that whole phenomenon. So there, there's some sort of financial event, right? Oil decks, you, you, you decide to sell to another party or something like that. You decide then you want to follow your passion, which is the, the geophysical software? Yeah, go back. I think it, it was interesting because the, the resource, so we started Ubiterra in 2012, basically, and we've been at it for a little while and and the inspiration was really like seeing that the cloud coming on saying look here's a whole new technological enabler for the gg&e software side you know ge- geology geophysics engineering software side and that space traditionally you know as serviced by landmark division of halliburton patrol division of schlumber schlumberger and many others it was a billion dollar software sales and service industry a year plus and, you know, you, you'll recall there was the big downturn of around, what year was that? Around uh, uh, 2008, 2009? Yeah. Well, that, but then there was another downturn around 2015. 15, uh, yeah, 2014. 14, yeah. 15. Yeah. And which, in, in our perspective on that was that was really when the, the trend toward resource and unconventional really accelerated. And that's mm-hmm. when people started realizing, wait a minute, the industry is not going to go back to how it was. And which was a shock to a lot of people, I think, and, and still is a shock. And, you know, and, and it's really, it, it's profound. There's a whole nother subject to get into how it's changed all the relationships among the disciplines, you know, in the, in the, in the industry between, you know, geophysics, geology, engineer, drilling engineers, et cetera. It's all been shuffled. And, you know, I was just out at the SEG annual convention. I'm a member of the SEG and I was out there in Anaheim at the, the show in, in, in the fall. And it, it, it was the smallest SGG they've ever had. And, you know, geophysics is very much a profession in our industry that's sort of in search of what is its role now in the resource era. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there are, there's plenty of things we can do with geophysics, and that's part of what we're trying to do, actually, with our, with our, with our company. But anyway, that is, we started it back, in, back then, and, and it's been an interesting ride. Again, we saw that the cloud technology... The first thing we went after was data management. We said oil companies generate tons of GG&E data and there needed to be a better place to store it. So that's interesting to me. Some of my background is in data management, but I would consider it more on the operational or, or you know, even financial side of things. We'll pull together some of your, your data from your production actuals and your financials as well as your forecasted data. But you're talking about the real technical subsurface data, your well logs, the, the details that... The seismic data. The, all the seismic data. Right. And it's a big storage management issue for these companies. 
And so the platform, the UBTERRA platform, started as a cloud and browser-based, basically a cross between Dropbox and Google Maps mm-hmm. as a you know, geospatially-enabled cloud-based place to store all that kind of technical data. And first thing we ran into was the attitude of the oil and gas industry of oil companies toward the cloud in 2013, 2014 was not positive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's something I don't think a lot of people even understand that, that some of these technologies couldn't even be deployed, you know, five years ago because the thought of putting your information and data on the cloud, when you talk to these oil and gas companies, like, no, it has to be on premise. <laughs> you know, yeah. We would go into meetings and, the IT department would say, basically, we would never put any corporate data in the cloud. You know, how, why would we even consider that? Because look at our wonderful data center we built here at our oil company, and <laughs> and we'd sit there and scratch our heads. You know, I, okay, clearly we're you know this is kind of interesting. And and then one guy pointed out to me, I was on a plane ride and I was talking about this this issue, and he said, yeah, we run into the same kind of a thing. It was another cloud company, and he said, what we'll tell people in our industry is that thinking that it's safer to put your corporate data in your own premise-based data center than putting it in, say, the Amazon cloud is like thinking it's safer to fly to Houston from Denver in a Cessna 172 single-engine plane where you're at the controls yourself than taking United <laughs> Airlines. Yeah, yeah I kind of relate it to, you know, someone that thinks it's safer to put 10 grand under their mattress instead of storing it in a, you know, insured bank. <laughs> J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so it was really a hard sell. And, but the platform was, we developed was really solid. And, and then, you know, you know how it is, you show it around and then somebody gives us the idea, hey, this would be a perfect, platform for building a real-time drilling guidance system for horizontal wells and <laughs> so we looked into that and said okay yeah they that that looks like an an, inter- an interesting you know problem to solve for the for the industry and and i guess well, i know a lot of everybody here probably listening to this podcast would be familiar with this but you know it's so interesting that the, the workflow transformation that's going on in our industry and it's very, the oil industry is becoming sort of like the General Motors assembly line. Totally you know? agree. Totally agree. And, you know, and, and it's having just an impact ripples through everything, you know. And, you know, so the traditional workstation GG&E software solutions, you know, sales are down. That's what, what we hear. And it, it's interesting to consider, right, like developing prospects for, for drilling decisions in the, in the conventional era, you know, based on 3D seismic, it was, every play was like its own science fair project where you, you had plenty of time and the, you know, the technical people could spend months developing the prospect and the maps. And, yeah, it, it could be emotional. <laughs> and then management would look at your, your prospect and you'd roll your maps out on the table. Yep. And then they'd say, okay, we'll go back and do a little more work. You know, I, I recontour this one area and, you know, and we need some more well data over here and some better, you know, economics over there, you know, and everybody would take their time. Now time is your enemy. You know, they spud the well and start to drill and, and the rates of penetration, the RPs are going faster and faster here in the DJ. They'll go as fast as 400 feet an hour. They can drill a whole two mile lateral in you know, two or three days. And if you're trying to high grade as you're drilling, you can't use conventional solutions. There's just not time. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's wild when you think about that. Even when I started roughnecking 10 years ago, you know, we're drilling 11,000 foot conventional wells. And I mean, those are taking us three weeks 
to drill. And, you know, now what we're drilling in, in the matter of three weeks is, you know, far beyond an 11,000 foot conventional. Oh, yeah. But the industry, you know, it's always been about at some point the need to high grade kicks in, you know, so the, the resource era, well, look back at the conventional era, you know, when there were a bunch of salt domes, you, you couldn't miss, you know, just drill a hole and you had a blowout back in the, so the resource era seems to me, you know, and I'm, I'm not an expert on, on reservoir engineering and all that stuff, but it, it started pretty much with the idea you just buy a shale lease and you just drill every location and you don't have to high grade, you don't have to do any science. And I think now, you know, the margin squeeze, you know, that increasingly becoming, you know, you know, apparent high grading, I think is going to become important. I'm not, it's not just me, but I think generally understood the need to high grade is becoming more and more. And, and so there's the high grading you can do up front when you're, you know, laying out your wells on your lease, like, oh, maybe we should lay them out on the fault blocks and pay attention to the faults instead of just make every well north, south, east, west. Mm-hmm. And then there's the high grading that you do as you're drilling. And that's the question of should one variant of that question is should we keep the, keep the lateral in the zone or should we drill, you know, a toe-up pistol barrel lateral? Mm-hmm. And so there's high grading that really needs to happen our view of it is people we talk to, you, you need to be able to, you know, put that, that lateral in the ground in the right way to stay in the best rock and have the best mechanical properties. It's, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we think it's going to make a big difference on your margins as you, you know, develop out your program. Did you high grade while you were drilling? Yeah, it's complicated stuff for sure. <laughs> uh, smart for me, man. <laughs> sit over your head, Jeremy. <laughs> I'm there with you, man. So, Peter... Give me a little bit of a time. I want a timestamp. When did you guys start Ubiterra? What what year was it? 2012. 2012. Okay. So you guys really kind of went through that struggle of getting companies to accept cloud-based software. Yeah, we lived, okay. we, we lived through that. And then there was that downturn, you know, so mm-hmm. that was tough on everybody, I think, 2014, yeah. 2015. Yeah. And then we came into 2017, sort of, we sort of re- rebooted the company with the idea that it was going to be a a drilling guidance system. Yeah. And, and then we rolled out V1 in April 27th, you know, about this time, two years ago. Okay. And, and very much a, a real-time drilling guidance system. So it runs in the cloud. We happen to run, we use the Microsoft Azure cloud, FYI. You know, there's really two clouds that matter, you know, the AWS Amazon cloud and mm-hmm. the, the Microsoft Azure cloud for deploying. And, and then we did the work to, so that we could connect to the rig in real time and, you know, and, and basically the way it worked, it started out is since we come from the seismic and from geophysics, the, the initial gap in the market was, well, if I am, if I'm a horizontal driller and I'm using 3D seismic data to high grade and to lay out my wells, how do I leverage that data while I'm drilling? Now, or to put it another way, wouldn't it be great if I could watch the drilling in real time of my well in, in a browser through the middle of my 3D seismic interpretation? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what the, first version of the product ZoneView did when it came out in beta about two years ago. And since then, so it was, it was purely visualization, basically real-time visualization of the drilling wells. So in our new release that came out in January, we've just added geosteering capability. So the ability to interpret, you know, where am I relative to the zone as I'm going? And that's, that's a known category of software. There are geosteering packages out sure. there. They tend to be very tightly focused on that one thing. Yeah, very niche. It's a very niche type products. And so what's new and different about ours is it's, it's a, 
a broader based approach. You know, a, a full visualization system that integrates all the different data types together. So basically, you you interpret your some portion of a lease, like where you're going to put a pad. You do that project in a system like Kingdom or, or Landmark Decision Space or Petrel or some yep. other system. And you upload it to the cloud, and then you put your drilling plans in there for your, all your horizontals. And then as you start to drill, you you can watch it in zone view, and then you can go ahead and steer it, and then correct your your subsurface maps and your interpretation as you're going. You can also watch it through your mobile device now too. Oh, yeah. well, <laughs> I suppose that would make that would make a lot of sense in the field. So, Peter, let me. Let me ask you this. What would be the ideal you know, company size or target? And then within the operator itself, who is the ideal persona that loves your software? Yeah, the way we view it is our product ultimately is, well, fortunately for us, we think <laughs> consolidation is going to happen in, you know, in the resource play space. I mm-hmm. think we're already seeing that. Anna Darko, I just read today, took the, the offer from... Um, was it Oxy? Oxy, Oxy, yeah, Oxy one, yeah. yeah. And so, like so much of things that have happened in our space, you know, it starts small and then, you know, the big companies, you know, buy up the opportunities, the consol- consolidation happens. Yeah. And then it becomes a more, you know, numbers-driven kind of a game where you know, a lot more people involved, a bigger organization. And so I, I think cloud-based solutions are particularly well-suited for that, for that type of situation where you have multiple people in multiple roles working in, you know, one or more companies, you know, comp- this is, this, this is what the cloud's for basically. And, and so ultimately we see our solution as, you know, pretty much an ideal system for a larger company that is really mounting pretty big effort and is running a lot of horizontal rigs. Then you get into the company and, you know, the asset team sort of run, run the show you know, on sure. the on the drilling and the completion, planning, drilling and completion, and the asset teams are cross disciplinary, and they're sort of you know, the, the, there's the engineers and there's the geoscientists basically, and then there's all the other support roles, you know, economists and compliance people, depending on the size of the company. But our our system really is we're catering to the geoscience part of that asset team. That's that, that's sort of our core constituency at this point. Okay. And you guys, you guys revamped in 2017. How are you seeing the adoption of y'all software now? Are people more open to it? And obviously, you know, we, we talked about the great crew change a little bit. Is it something that you're seeing that people are more accepting of? Yeah, I think it's the release is generating a lot of interest, especially now that we've added the geosteering capability to the system. Because that it really is the primary role of the geoscientist on the asset team is to steer the well, you know, and probably... 75, 80% of all, all horizontal wells are steered. And whether they're making, you know, drilling target changes while they drill or whether they're drilling, you know, straight toe-up type of drilling, they generally will still steer to know, know where they were. So, yeah, so that, that is the, the main real-time workflow going on in the, in the geoscience side of the asset team. I think ultimately products in the space – probably need to be cross-disciplinary, need to address, mm-hmm. you know, what everybody on that team is doing. That makes sense. Yeah, totally agree. I would also note that a geo steer on average is probably, what, 67 and a half years old today? <laughs> I don't know, but... <laughs> Every geo steerer I know has been doing it for 30 some odd years, it seems. I don't know a lot of young geo steers. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really interesting, right? And you just look at the... It's so different than what a geologist did, say even six or seven years ago 
in your typical oil and gas company. And there still are geologists who are doing the regional work and, you know, the, the conceptual work. But, but there's, I, it'd be interesting. I don't know exactly, but you figure at this moment in time, there's probably a thousand horizontal rigs running in North America and yeah. figure nearly all of them are being steered. So there's, there's lots and lots of geologists who their job is shift work basically day in, day out running, you know, every, and it's, it's really amazing how manual it is. So I would say, and this is one of the th- special, one, one kind of special sauce we have in our application. We've done the work to connect up you know our cloud-based application to the to the rig and talk to it we're talking to the rig in real time and you're looking at real-time information when you're in zone can we touch base on that real quick because i wanted to ask you about that i know a lot of work goes into you know even building out the connectors to be able to communicate with the rig how are you guys doing that are you you know are you running through paysons data or or novs or you guys how does that work yeah yeah the way you talk to a modern drilling rig is through what's called the witsml protocol and that's the, the means of communication. And, and it, fortunately, it was, it was about 2008 that that really, I think, started to catch on and it came out and it, they off started offering those services. And I think it probably it was initially for deep water drilling where there was a, a ton of capital in play, but it's there to be done and, and, and utilized. And, and it's interesting, though, if you're, if you're trying to do real-time types of this kind of a real-time workflow, you almost have to have a cloud. You almost have to be a cloud-based application because you know your your cloud app is running. It's up there in the cloud. It's running twenty-four by seven. Real time is a twenty-four by seven sort of a challenge. It's not a oh, open my laptop and you know and fire up my Windows software and get an occasional update kind of a thing. And it's it's interesting because all the juice during that goes on today. It's pretty much the pattern is you know there's an ops geologist who's on duty and they're getting emails literally from the rig. Every, you know, anytime they do a, a survey station. So every, you know, 30 to 90 minutes or whatever, you know, whenever they're, they're taking an official survey station, the LWD company out on the rig, the hand, just composes an email and emails it to the person at the company or, to, at, or at the contractor who then manually opens this email and take, gets, takes the attachments and looks at them and cut and paste stuff into their Windows program and updates their... You know, you don't know how bad it bothered me when I was a project manager for InVenture, just the length of email chains in oil and gas operations. I was like, man, there's got to be a better way to organize these workflows on software. So here we are in the 21st century and people are guiding rigs, you know, with manual email attachments. And and then their job, and and think about this, this is a a highly trained, highly educated, you know, individual, the, the, the ops geologist, and some percentage of their time is going to, you know, wrangling emails every that's what i don't that's what i don't think a lot of emps or or just any company in oil and gas understands is that you have these highly technical professionals at your company you know whether it's a petroleum engineer geologist whoever it may be and most of them are spending their time doing tasks like aggregating data or you know communication through emails and these companies really have to look at how can we make our our employees more efficient you know we pay these guys good money Let's pay them good money to actually do what their, you know, their technical ability is, is based around instead of, you know, these, these tasks. Yeah. And not to say it doesn't work. I mean, they're, they're drilling plenty of laterals, but, but I think in the pursuit of better margins as an industry, as a, the resource industry, these processes have to become very refined and you want all the inefficiency needs to be squeezed out. And then, you know, and then uh, the data needs to flow in real time. 
they need to be able to do on-the-fly analysis, you know, where the, the, bit, the bit could be going forward as fast as 400 feet or more an hour. And so they, they need different kinds of software systems that can do these things to evaluate, you know, it's what, what is an optimal lateral, you know, and that's a big question. And, and ultimately a way we'll know is that real-time drilling systems where that the data is accumulating in real time into some sort of a data warehouse and then machine algorithms will be going in and, you know, so-called machine learning and helping companies evaluate, you know, where did I get the best revenue per foot of lateral? You know, that, that's a, a well, a, a metric that's bandied about revenue per foot of lateral mm-hmm. or, or production per foot of lateral. Yeah. And, you know, what's the relationship between, you know, my drilling parameters? Did I, what percentage of time was I in the zone? What was the tortuosity of the well bore? What was the, what was the hydrocarbon content of what I went through? What were the lithologies? What, what was my fracking strategy? What were my pressures? How much sand did I use? What was my reach? What were my production results? So I think the future involves, you know, all of that being sort of done in real time and analyzed in real time. And, and, and it'll lead companies to be able to high grade in real time as they're, mm-hmm. as they're as they're doing in pursuit of good margins so peter what what would you say is your biggest inhibitor to growth is it that your technology may appear threatening or overwhelming to some is it that it sounds like other software they may already have is it that you can't get to the market fast enough what would you say are your biggest challenges and inhibitors to growth well believe it or not there's still plenty of oil companies resistant to the cloud and where they, uh, you know, and it's really interesting. You know, traditionally, companies were super shy about uh, or very guarded about drilling data. You know, where are my locations going to be or where are they now? You know, what, this information is all tight hole. Even in the, in, in the oil and gas company, most of the people aren't even allowed to know, you know, where the subsurface maps are tightly controlled. And so the idea of putting that information, you know, in a third-party storage infor- and computing infrastructure, you know, whether, you know, Amazon or Microsoft or whatever, I think is still a challenge. And I think for a lot of, a lot of oil and gas companies and they, it is natural, but misguided to think that your, your corporate data center is, but it is easy to understand that to think that one's own corporate data centers, you know, somehow more resistant to hackers than say Amazon's infrastructure. Which is just, I mean, the fact that you have servers locked away in a server room doesn't make it more secure than you know, what AWS or, or, or Microsoft has. Well, the way I like to explain it is they'll say, say, isn't it true as an energy company that, you know, you go out and hire the best engineers, the best, you know, geoscientists and economists, et cetera, that, that you can hire and you recruit from the schools you've identified as the best schools for that. You compete with other energy companies for those people. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Well, do you do that for your IT people? <laughs> and because that's what Amazon and Microsoft and Google are doing. They're hiring all the top IT people in the world coming I think out of the best companies. Oil and gas companies need to realize that they're oil and gas companies, not tech companies. And I think this is, you know, Jeremy, maybe you guys can even elaborate on this a little bit, but you know, previously you've seen companies that try to build in house software to, you know, provide solutions to some of their problems that they're having. And, you know, this is like I'm not going to throw any names out, but Exxon, um, <laughs> you know, Exxon, we, we were sitting down with them at their headquarters a while back and they were saying that very thing that, you know, historically we've tried building our own solutions, but we're starting to have the realization that, Hey, there's these tech companies that specialize in building out technology. We should just look at, 
you know, implementing what they're building. So Exxon Mobil is one of the most successful companies in the world, right? I mean, I, I think they can afford to be a tech company and to be an oil company. But, but I think the general challenge that I often see is, is companies have brilliant people, whether it's on the technology side or, or on the operations or business side. And people may build amazing software. The challenge with software, and Peter, you can speak to this, is, is then maintaining it. It's, it's upgrading it. It's taking additional client requests, learning and pulling information from other operators in the industry to build a best solution that, that exists. Because as we know, change is, is very constant in this space. Yeah, and it comes down to what's your core competency? What, are you an energy company or are you a software company? And now that being the case, it, it, I, I think there, there is a case for certain in the larger companies, the Exxons of the world, whatever, to build in-house software. They, they have their needs. And I think it, it's sort of a, a known pattern that I've seen in my career that some new workflow or, or analytical problem gets addressed by in-house software. And then that gives some entrepreneur an idea that, oh, I'm going to go build a commercial version of that. And once that commercial version is available, it's probably in the oil company's best interest to give up their in-house version mm-hmm. and because they're not going to be able to compete against the, the commercial version, you know, in terms of, you know, roadmap and feature growth and maintaining it, as you say, and so on and so forth. But for companies like an Exxon, I'm sure there's plenty of internal esoteric workflows that they're going to want to address, but with their own software. That is such a common path for these tech startups. I mean, I can't tell you how many engineers I've talked to that have you know, seen or designed something in-house and then went out and started building it commercially. You know, I have engineers reach out all the time asking about going out on their own, starting their own, their own business. And I'm like, man, you're, you know, you're in the thick of things. Like you, you see the problems. I mean, dude, I remember when I was working out in the field, I saw so many problems and I was, this is so archaic. Yeah. You know, there's gotta be a better way to do this. So when you're actually in the thick of things, you know, you're seeing the opportunities and solutions being built every day. And those, those same solutions can be built out in a commercial enterprise aspect. Yeah. And software is a tough business on top of it. I mean, it's hard to build good software in the first place. It's hard to, you know, hit the target in the market. It's hard to maintain it. It's hard to make money off of it. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, if you don't have to be in the software business, I would advi- wouldn't advise you be in it. You know? <laughs> it's, like, it's coming from someone that's on their fourth one. <laughs> yeah. 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 Kind of going, going back on that, I've had this question kind of lingering in my head uh, since we've been talking. And, you know, you, you look at your background as a geophysicist, but you took an interest in software. How did you make that transition? I mean, is it something that you actually went to school and started learning how to code, or did you find technical co-founders to help you whip up these products? How, how did you go about that? Yeah, it, it turned out that I was able to code. It was just something that the environment I grew up in back in that, it was, I'm, I'm from upstate New York. It was heavily IBM, you know. And oh, yeah. <laughs> 631? Yeah. <laughs> 631 area? Yeah. Jeremy's from Northeast as well. Yeah, yeah, Boston. If you can't tell by by the accent. <laughs> yeah, we think of we think of uh, you know the, if you look at the history of the computing industry in the U.S., you think it's all Silicon Valley, but actually, so much of it was invented and came out of the northeastern U.S. You know, the upstate New York, Boston, and you know where you're from, Jeremy. It was oh, tens and tens and tens of thousands of people worked for IBM. I don't know how many, maybe hundreds of thousands, and so. I just, I was a kid in that environment and we just, it was sort of a Silicon Valley before Silicon Valley. And then, you know, so I just had an affinity toward it, an interest in it. And then, you know, but then in companies that I've been involved in, take, take oil decks, for example, you know, you know, we quickly put, had a, 
a real development team, you know, a real software development team, you know, with I think 15 developers at the time and, you know, and so who were, you know, specialists and CS majors and all that. Mm-hmm. But it's very interesting. So, you know, I was on Twitter the other day and I hang out on Twitter to, I, I watch the venture capitalists kind of go back and forth. That's where they like to hang out. And someone was actually talking about the, you know, you have all these operators, all these entrepreneurs that once they get their exit, a lot of people are going the venture capital route and it's actually becoming a problem because you need the experienced operators that have built successful companies and exited. You need those guys to repeat the process and, you know, but it's tough, right? Like not everybody wants to do that. You know, if you get your, you know, you get your payday, you get your acquisition, you know, some people, they don't want to go through that misery of, of doing a, a startup. I mean, you just said it yourself that the software business yeah, is a hard one. So you have to have passion for it, you know, and if you're passionate about wanting to create your own thing and, you know, and, and you have to view it, I think as an entrepreneur, it's not just that you're creating a product, you're creating a company mm-hmm. and, the company, its culture, its people, what your philosophy or mission is going to be, it, that's as much of a creation as whatever product it is you're creating. And that's what's going to really make the difference between failure and success is, you know, you know how you approach that. And so you've got to have a passion for, for all the above and willingness to dive into it, stick with it, take the good with the bad or the bad with the good. And you guys have had your own experiences and you know, it's nothing worth doing is easy. I, I could spout out a bunch of euphemisms. Yeah. <laughs> but they're, it, you know, it's very rewarding, and, but it's, it's also not easy. Yeah, you know, that's, that was my next question was going to be, you know, do you have any advice for people listening? I mean, I can't tell you how many engineers, geologists, you know, field hands I have reached out to me asking for advice on making that jump into entrepreneurship, you know, starting up their own business, starting up their own know startup and i think that you touched a lot on that i mean if you have anything that you want to add feel free i, I would say you you just make sure your your reservoir of optimism is full <laughs> it's like gas in the tank when you love uh, man we we got to make a quote out of that i love that <laughs> yeah, no i i mean i'd like for you to expand upon that a little bit because i think personally i've probably been deterred from some things in in my younger days when people said oh that's a bad idea right so so i think what you're getting at is you have to have this unbridled belief that what you're doing is the right path. Yeah. And even if you suspect that it's not necessarily quite, or maybe just maybe not the right path, you still have to, you have to persist. You have to be optimistic. You have to, you you can't be stupid. You have to constantly question yourself and reanalyze. Mm -hmm. I think, one way you know you're an entrepreneur that's gone on the entrepreneurial path is if you have trouble sleeping from time to time <laughs> and you wake up at two in the morning and you're thinking about your business plan over and over and over again. Am I doing, is this, do I have it right? You know, do I need, do I need to adjust it? Can I meet payroll? Yeah. Uh, you know, where's the capital going to come from? Wait a minute. Now, you know, ah, darn it. It took me seven years to save up all that money. You know, it's, <laughs> it's going pretty fast, you know, or I want to do a deal with this this individual or this firm wants to invest in my company, but it you know they want they want control. <laughs> you know, so there's there's seven ways to Sunday. It doesn't it can't it won't work out. And there's maybe one way that it will work out. Mm-hmm. But you just got to believe. You got to believe, and you have the optimism that you're going to do it. You can do it. Yeah. And and you're going to charge through it, and and you're going to help the people around you who are going to help you do it, and you're going to you know 
you're going to be loyal to them. They're going to hopefully be loyal to you and you're going to, you're going to make it happen. And it's an amazing process really. Yeah. I, you know, I talk about it a lot, but in entrepreneurship, there's so many highs and lows. And I think the lows probably outnumber, outnumber the highs in terms of volume. And so I love that, that saying, you know, you have to keep your reservoir full of optimism because you really have to have that to carry you through. Yeah, it is. It's a great thing about, you know, our society, the country we live in, et cetera, that, that, that you can do this. You have the opportunity, the opportunity to do that in, in, in here mm-hmm. in North America and in the U S and it, it's also a great thing about the oil industry. You know, there's, there's entrepreneurs starting new EMP companies and, you know, service companies all the time. It's not just high, the high tech stuff and innovation happens in the small and then it blows uphill to the big, hopefully at some point. And then we, we entrepreneurs all get our exits and we can go do it again. And then the bigger companies can farm it out over, you know, years or decades to come, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, whatever it was that was that you hopefully successfully started. So it's, it's really an interesting system. And I, I think it's, it's, it, it's part of what makes the American economy. So, you know, so resilient. So absolutely know, innovative. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you go on, on, on the point of talking about, you know, we're fortunate to live where we are, be in the industry that we're in. We have so much opportunity. How old were you when you started your first company? Did you 28. say 28? 28. So, yeah. so late twenties. And, you know, I get, I get messages, like I said, from people all the time talking about, it. I'm like, man, there's so much opportunity in the oil and gas industry, you know, especially it's from, it's from people, you know, mid twenties, late twenties. And I'm like, just, Go out and, and, and take some risks and do it. There's so much opportunity out there to, to attack. And, you know, I, I look at it as we're extremely blessed to have that opportunity. And, you know, you should, you should seize it if you feel like it's your calling. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll put in a plug for our industry in general. I had the opportunity to see a talk by uh, Chris Wright from Liberty Resources. Oh, okay, yeah. Liberty, Liberty Oil Field Services yeah. at the Denver uh, 3D Symposium in March. And... He gave the lunchtime talk, and it was it was just a fascinating talk about the the good that we as an industry are doing, you know, for society. You know, so all what does all this innovation drive? What does it cause to happen? You know, and this gets obviously gets into a lot of issues. You know, it's a big issue for our industry in general right now. You mm-hmm. know, what is, what what is our how to you know what is our the PR spin on the whole energy extraction business right now yeah. in our larger society? But you have. He had a great point that, you know, it's not talked about too often, but energy correlates with human welfare, well-being directly. You know, the higher the energy level that you have access to as, as a person in society, the higher your standard of living is going to be, the longer your lifespan is going to be, the higher your level of education is going to be. And one of the points he brought out, brought out is that, you know, he breaks down humanity into four categories, level one, two, three, four. So we're, we all live, and probably everybody listening to this podcast, we live at level four. We have access to energy. We have indoor plumbing. We have the internet. We have transportation mm-hmm. at our fingertips, right? But there's, he, he said there's almost a billion people on the planet living at level one, where they have to, manu- they have to walk to fetch water each day. They, to stay warm, they have to burn, you know, peat, or dung, or coal, mm-hmm. or wood, in their house, in an you know in an open flame, you know. Think of what that implies, and they and and to move move from level one to level two. Level two is better. One of the number one indicators is bottled gas, access to bottled gas. Mm-hmm. 
so that you can cook and heat without That's such it. a I mean you boil it down like that and it's such a rudimentary way of of looking at it but it really does show you the you know the impact that oil and gas has on the on the United States you know I can't remember who was it uh who asked uh, if working in oil and gas was ethical I can't remember where I saw that the other day and you know kind of got my my blood boiling because you know how how can you ask a question is it ethical when it's provided such a a good life and yeah. and and so you have all all these companies that we have worked for or have worked for and and who are pursuing the the resource play revolution and they're producing all the shale gas it's all go, it's go, a lot of it's now starting to go out in LNG tankers mm-hmm. out to the, all these global markets and ergo enabling lots of people who need bottled gas <laughs> to cook their food and eat their house. That's wild. Yeah, I think, you know, the implications that we're going to see over the next 10 to 20 years, especially with all the new technology that's coming out on the scene to make oil and gas operations more efficient, I think that as a whole, it'll make the world a better place. So mm-hmm. we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Peter, before we wrap up here, where can people find you? Your website is ubiterra.com, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. That's the best place. We have a LinkedIn presence like everybody else. And so, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So you can go check out their website. It's spelled U-B-I-T-E-R-R-A.com. We'll have a link to their website in our show notes. Peter, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Colin, thanks for having me. Yeah. And Jeremy. Yeah. Jeremy, thanks for being a co-host, man. Pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you, guys. Cut, 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 cut.